Good morning. You are all the early birds, huh? I hope you get more than a worm. We are studying Hebrews, as you know. And last Sunday, I attempted to give a general context for the book of Hebrews that would set it in the framework of the early church. Today, I want to talk about the purpose uh, and structure of Hebrews, some of what we generally call the introductory questions. And these will help us a great deal in the understanding of Hebrews. And then the remaining Sundays, the remaining four Sundays, we will do our topical studies of Christology and salvation or the pilgrimage of the believer in this letter to the Hebrews. Again, let me invite you to interrupt with questions, comments. We'll also reserve some special time at the end for that. Let us pray together. Gracious God, we are grateful for your goodness and for the opportunity we have to study a wonderful text like Hebrews. May it enrich our lives, deepen our thinking, encourage us in our living as Christians who seek to be obedient to the eternal salvation provided in Jesus Christ. Be with us on this beautiful day. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Hebrews is an interesting text. And one of the discussions that has taken place is the attempt to describe what Hebrews is. I think it's customarily called a letter. I think if I were to ask most persons what we assumed Hebrews to be, it would be a letter in, in my translation of the Bible. It even says at the top of the page, the letter to the Hebrews. Now that little heading, of course, was not part of the original text. That's added for our benefit but it is often called a letter. But you may know that letters that were written at this time took a very standard form, and they always began with the name of the letter writer and a description, and then the name of the recipient and a description, and a blessing and a greeting. Therefore, a typical letter of Paul, I'll just open to 1 Corinthians at random, starts like this. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, da-da-da-da-da-da, grace to you and peace from God and our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you see the form of the letter. Paul, to Corinth, grace to you. And that was, that was how all letters were written. We have, by the way, thousands of letters that have survived from this period. And whether they're secular, formal, informal, business, personal, that's how they all start. And, and by the way, in secular letters, there's also a, a blessing at the beginning. Usually something like, uh, may you enjoy good health or May you have the blessing of the gods or whatever it might be. So Hebrews doesn't start like this. And that's one reason why scholars formally would say Hebrews is not a letter. It does not have the conventional letter opening. So it's not a letter in that sense. Now, what complicates life is that Hebrews ends, however, a little bit like a letter. When we get to the letter... The last part of Hebrews, it does have greetings at the end, which is customary in a letter, to have greetings at the end. So Hebrews has a little bit of the letter form, but I think we can explain this. Actually, Hebrews tells us what it is. Hebrews is, in fact, a sermon. Hebrews 13 22 says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, bear with my word of exhortation. So Hebrews 
calls itself a word of exhortation, what today we would call a sermon. It's not that much longer than most sermons we hear. I think I told you last week you could read Hebrews in 30 minutes, did I? Out loud? That's, I was wrong, wasn't I? 44 minutes. I don't know how long it took you. A slow reading, 44 minutes. So let's say a fast reading, 40 minutes. And of course, in the early church, when documents like this were delivered, people heard it orally. Most people couldn't read at that time. The maximum number of readers was about 30% of the population. So typically in a congregation, when a letter like this would arrive, someone who could read would stand up in front of the congregation and read. And this would have taken, let's say, 45 minutes for the congregation to hear. That wouldn't have been terribly long. And it would have been the word of exhortation like a sermon. Now, in a sense, of course, it's a pretty heavy sermon. It is, I think today, we would probably call this a theological essay or a tract. It's kind of a combination of a sermon and a pastoral word of advice that probably was sent to a group of churches much like a letter. And thus it has the greetings at an end, although it was not technically a letter because it doesn't begin that way. So that's what Hebrews in. It's a word of exhortation, a sermon, a homily, a theological essay. And you notice the author also says, as all people who are long-winded say, I have written to you briefly. <laughs> I just want to have a brief word with you. Always means it's going to be longer. We know these conventions. So he might be conscious of that he's gone a little more than just briefly. Um, so that's what Hebrews is. Now the structure of Hebrews. Hebrews alternates between two kinds of material. What we call the Christological material. That is the presentations of the person and work of Jesus Christ what we might consider the heavier theological content, the descriptions of Christ. Christology is the technical word for that. The Christological material. And then the other parts of Hebrews are what we would call the pastoral exhortations. This is what we ought to do. The exhortation of the pastor. This word of exhortation. And the exhortations are made up of two parts. There are warnings and there are encouragements. Now the warnings are given with a sense of grace, but they do come across rather severely. And the warnings start out short and they get longer and longer and longer and they get tougher and tougher and tougher sterner and sterner and sterner, it's clear that the pastoral author is deeply concerned about the congregation or congregations, presumably many churches, that we're going to read this letter or this essay. And so this pastor alternates between the warnings and the encouragements. He says, for example, the first warning comes in chapter 2. Let's, we'll read that. That's the short one. Therefore, we must pay greater attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the message declared through angels was valid, how can we escape if we neglect so great salvation? So here's a gentle rhetorical question. How can we escape if we neglect? The implied answer is, you can't escape if you neglect. And by the time we get to the macro warning near the end, it talks about what a fearful thing it is to fall in the hands of a living God who's going to judge if one neglects. So the warnings increase in 
their length and their severity. But at the same time, there's a lot of encouragement. The author will say, you're going to make it. I have confidence. In fact, after one of the really tough warnings in chapter 6, which we're going to talk about, on, especially on the last Sunday of our series, he says in verse 9 of chapter 6, Even though we speak in this way, beloved, we are confident, confident of better things in your case. So after he has, in a sense, laced them with a tough warning and says, you could be in big trouble, eternal trouble. Uh, of course, I don't expect that of any of you. It's sort of like, if I may use a homey example from my own life, when I say to my students, your papers are due on December 6th. And these are the penalties if you don't get your paper in by December 6th, this fall quarter. And some students are very nervous. And then I say, of course, you're a wonderful class. I know all of you will be on time. So you try to soften the tough warning with this little word of encouragement. You know, statistically by experience, there will be at least one person in that group who won't get the paper done by December 6th. But you don't know who it is. But there will be somebody, probably, who won't heed the warning. But the warning is given, and then a word of encouragement that says, of course, I expect better things of you. So the author wants to keep encouraging, and the encouragements become very deep. Now, on your outline that you have, I trust you still have one of these, if you turn <coughs> to page 2. Excuse me, I'm, I still have my residual cough that I picked up when I was out of the country. And my doctor has given me all appropriate medications and all those kinds of things, but still can't quite get rid of it. If you look toward the bottom of page 2, this is my simple outline of Hebrews starts out with a Christological passage. The finality and greatness of Jesus Christ. Now, these are powerful texts. We're going to talk about those the next two Sundays. Then within that first Christological passage, we have the first warning and encouragement in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And then we have the second warning and encouragement starting in chapter 3, especially verse 7, through chapter 4, verse 13. So it's a fairly long passage. And that warning is going to stress how Israel was disobedient, how it had unbelief, and the punchline, as it were, is going to be that Israel, because of their unbelief, were unable to enter the promised land they were unable to claim the rest that God had promised and provided. And so then, the author to the Hebrews says to the churches, let's, verse 11 of chapter 4, for example, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that none of us may fall by disobedience like they did. So he's building this warning, and he says, indeed, the Word of God is living and sharper than a two-edged sword. I mean, this is kind of threatening language. The Word of God is very powerful. And before Him no creature is hidden. All are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the One to whom we must render an account. This is heavy. This is saying, in effect... Realize with whom you are dealing. You're dealing with God. Then, starting in 4.14, all the way through 10.18, a very long Christological passage. And this is primarily about the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. So this is long, it's intricate, 
It's creative. We'll talk about this in the next two weeks as well. And within that passage is the third warning and encouragement, 5.11 through 6.12. And notice how 5.11 starts. About this we have much to say that is hard to explain, since you have become dull in understanding. I mean, that's pretty blunt. I'd like to explain this to you, class, but, you know, you've become dull. I just can't get it across to you. It's not my problem. It's yours. You're dumb in understanding. This time, you know, you ought to be teachers by now. This is Teacher Appreciation Sunday. What are you doing sitting here? You should all be teaching. But, you know, you need milk, not solid food. You're still an infant. You're unskilled. I mean, this is tough. He hasn't polished up the words too much. But he says, 6.1, let us go on toward perfection. He said, let's keep moving. Let's get there. Then remember verse 9, he says, I actually am confident of better things in your case. And God's not unjust. He will not overlook your work and the love you showed God knows all the good things you've done. And I'm encouraged of good things for you. So you see what the author is doing. I mean, he's, he's kind of stuck. He's terribly worried that these congregations are going to turn their backs on God. And he's got some evidence that that might be taking place. We've talked about that. And so he utters these warnings and he even is willing to say I think you're kind of dull and infantile but I want you to move on to perfection I want you to succeed I actually believe you're going to do well I know God understands all the good things you have done so we're going to make it and this will get better and better as we go along he will tell them we're going to make it then 1019 to 1229 is what I call the macro warning. It's the fourth warning encouragement. It's big. It goes from 1019 all the way through 1229 where he discusses at some length what ought to be done. He says, starting in 1019, Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, and he gives all kinds of reasons. We have this confidence. Let us, verse 22, approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Verse 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. So he begins this long warning and encouragement to the congregation 1019 all the way through 1229 and then chapter 13 almost functions like an appendix and it constitutes further encouragement and sort of picks up some details but it has some very strong and wonderful words of encouragement in chapter 13 those first 21 verses. And then the last four verses of Hebrews are a traditional epistolary conclusion, that is, a letter conclusion, an epistle, in which it follows that format. Now that's a simple way to understand Hebrews. It goes back and forth, Christology, warning and encouragement. Christology, warning and encouragement. And the warnings and encouragements start small and get big. They start gentle and get tough. They start small and get more expansive. And the Christology talks about the glory and power and status of Jesus Christ in general and his priesthood in particular. So we will look at those two things next week, as you will see from your outline.
Now I'd like to turn to the occasion and purpose, and I'm going to ask Karen if she'd be so kind as to either refill this cup or bring me a new one. Thank you. I'm sorry to do that. The occasion and purpose of Hebrews. One of the realities of the New Testament that's often frustrating is rarely does an author tell us why he wrote the text. We have to figure it out, kind of by reading between the lines. Jeanette once did a wonderful experiment related in part to this academic enterprise of mine of teaching New Testament. Jeanette was leading a what, what was called in our prior church in Oak Park, Illinois, where we were for many years. When we went there, as you know, Bill Goddard was pastor there. And uh, Jeanette led what was called a mom's Bible study. It was on Wednesday mornings, still going. Jeanette started this Bible study for mothers of young children. And we had a good friend. In fact, it's where Jeanette's going to be staying the next couple of days. Uh, um, a woman who had young children who stayed at home and happened to live in a big house. They have ten bedrooms, for example. And uh, they opened, this woman opened her home for the mom's Bible study, which was every Wednesday morning. And they were, I don't remember what letter of Paul they happened to be studying at the time, but Jeanette had just received a letter from one of our great friends, a woman named Linda who lives in Maryland, that we have known for over 40 years. And she's one of our deepest and closest friends. We've been very intimate with them and their, their life and their marriage and their children and their situation over all these years. And Jeanette had just gotten a letter from Linda. Now, none of the mothers in her Bible study had ever met Linda. In fact, none of them had ever heard of Linda before. Jeanette went to the Bible study, and she read to them this three- or four-page letter from Linda. And then she asked them, why did Linda write this letter? Who is Linda? What is this letter about? And the thing that was astounding, of course, is that they could reconstruct so much. From the little lines here and there in this fortune, you know, it was a long letter, four pages, and Linda hadn't written for a while, so it, it covered a lot of ground. They were able to figure out that the letter was from a woman, that it must have been someone Jeanette had known for a long time. They could figure out that she was married, that she had children, that she had at one time cooperated with Jeanette in teaching bread-baking classes, and a whole host of other things they reconstructed by piecing together clues in the letter. I think they figured out what she did for a living, what her husband did, all kinds of things, and what occasioned this letter, some event in the life of one of their children or something like that. Well, that's, in effect, what we do with the documents of the New Testament. In some cases, we're quite successful. In other cases, it's much, much more difficult. But we try to reconstruct the situation by reading the letter. Scholars sometimes call it reading between the lines, or it's called the mirror reading of the text. You look and see what's reflected off the page. You make some assumptions to be true, to be sure, your assumptions might be wrong, but you then test them with the document and kind of go back and forth. So, having said that, what do we think is happening in the congregations that get Hebrews? Our best clue comes in chapter 10. So if you look at chapter 10, starting in verse 32. But recall those earlier days when, after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse and persecution, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. 
For you had compassion for those who were in prison, and you cheerfully accepted the plundering of your possessions, knowing that you yourselves possess something better and more lasting. Do not, therefore, abandon that confidence of yours. Now, one other verse, chapter 12, verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, these two little passages are the clue that the people who got Hebrews had been a persecuted congregation, although no one had died in the persecution. No one had actually become a martyr in this persecution. But some had gone to prison. Some had their personal property confiscated. Others were made fun of in the public square. Many were abused in one way or another, economically, socially, verbally. They were hassled and condemned. Now, we don't have any other information to identify this particular persecution. In fact... There's very little evidence about persecutions in the first century A.D. when it comes to any specificity. But there are enough references in the New Testament alone to help us understand that occasionally, locally, believers in Jesus Christ were persecuted. Paul tells us that. We know that Paul himself, before he met Jesus Christ, was a persecutor of the church. He tells us that. And we have some external evidence. I think we mentioned last time that Nero actually killed several Christians in Rome in A.D. 64. And we have some other evidences of persecution directed against believers in Jesus Christ in the first century. When we get to the book of Revelation, which we can almost with certainty say was written <coughs> excuse me, about A.D. 95, it actually mentions someone who died in the persecution. It talks about persecution. It talks about Rome being drunk with the blood of the saints. And then I think I mentioned last week the letter of Pliny the Younger, written to the Emperor Trajan in the province of Bithynia. Did I, I mention that? Did I not? Didn't I talk about Pliny? I didn't. You know, one of, one of my liabilities... Pardon? No, you weren't, no. I, this sounds so pretentious, but I lecture in so many different places and often on the same themes. It was in another place I was saying this. Sorry. Well, let me tell you. There was a governor of a Roman province about 115 A.D., well, that's not too long. You know, that's what, 50 years or so after the time of Nero. Governor named Pliny. We call him Pliny the Younger. That's because he had an uncle that we call Pliny the Older. These two Plinys. They were very famous people in the Roman Empire. And uh, Uncle Pliny, Pliny the Older, was a scientist. He wrote a huge encyclopedia in which he wanted to record all scientific and other kinds of knowledge. It's very interesting to read. I don't, I don't know what you call it, but if you wake up in the morning and you have all that crusty stuff in the corner of your eye, I don't. I, I grew up learning to call that uh, sleep. But, you know, he, he plenty wrote about that, sneezing, hiccuping, and everything else. Jewelry, perfume, animals, work, geography. It's a massive work. Much of it has survived. And actually, this is totally irrelevant, but so I think it's so fun. Pliny the Elder was quite a scientist, and he lived in Italy, and he lived just on the opposite side of the bay where Mount Vesuvius was. And you know that Mount Vesuvius erupted as a volcano in A.D. 79 and buried two cities, 
Pompeii and Herculaneum. And Pliny, of course, had written about volcanoes, but he had never actually seen one erupt. And so when Vesuvius started to erupt, this went on for several days, he got in his boat and sailed across the bay to get closer so he could really write a good scientific description of the, of the volcano. And he got too close, was overcome with the gas fumes, and died. And Pliny the Younger, his nephew, was living with him at the time. And that's how we know this story. Because Uncle Pliny wanted nephew Pliny to go with him in the boat. And nephew Pliny had too much homework to do. He was a teenager at the time. So he declined to get in the boat <clears throat> with his uncle. And he stayed at home and watched out the window and learned about his uncle's death. Well, later, some years later, Pliny the Younger became a Roman governor of a province of the Roman Empire called Bithynia. It was in what today would be northern Turkey. And Pliny, at one point, was disturbed, and he wrote a letter to the emperor, Roman emperor, and he said, I've got Christians in my province. Should I kill them? I'm not quite sure what to do with them. And he said, I've actually hired spies and infiltrated their worship services. And so actually, Pliny the Younger gives us a nice description of a Christian worship service written about 115 A.D. based on what his spies saw. In the, they sang hymns to Christ as if he were God and talks about their fellowship meal and their love for one another and they had male and female deacons and so on. At any rate, he thought that the Christians were basically harmless but he wasn't quite sure what to do. And one of the reasons there was a problem is that the Christians wouldn't sacrifice to the Roman emperor. They considered that inappropriate. And Trajan wrote back and said, don't bother to go looking for Christians. But if someone brings you a Christian and accuses them and says, this person's a Christian, you ask them if they're a Christian. And if they say yes, you require them to go into a temple and sacrifice to the Roman emperor. And if they do that, let them go. And if they refuse, kill them on the spot. So that's another piece of our evidence of how the church was trying to negotiate within its culture. Now, at the time of Hebrews, we don't know the date, but it's between 60 and 80 A.D. for sure, the church was facing persecution. We don't know exactly what shape that persecution was taking. Not death, but confiscation of property public humiliation, social ostracism. And thus we assume from that, as we read all of Hebrews, that some Christians were saying, you know, maybe this isn't worth it. Maybe I'm not going to follow through on this commitment. And Hebrews indicates that some Christians stopped meeting together because obviously if you meet together, it's a lot easier for the authorities to find you and arrest you. So that's always happens in any persecution situation. The meetings are at question. They're often banned, declared illegal, or you have to meet in secret. You run a great risk if you meet. And so Hebrews tells us that some of the believers stopped meeting together. And Hebrews writes and says, you can't do that. If you're people of faith, you have to keep meeting together. You have to encourage each other. You have to help each other. You have to express love and support for one another. And so Hebrews is written to a congregation that's under duress, where people are in danger of denying their faith. They're in danger of falling away which is one of the terms Hebrews uses. Falling away, giving up the faith, not believing, not meeting together. These are the dangers. 
And Hebrews says, you know, you could be just like the children of Israel in the wilderness who did the same thing. They gave up. They stopped exercising their faith. They said it wasn't worth it. And we remember that some of them even said, you know, it wasn't so bad back there in Egypt, even in that time of slavery. We had more to eat. Let's go back. And the author of the Hebrews says, don't be like that. The only people who find salvation are the people who are people of faith, people who don't give up. And as you know, one of the great encouragements in Hebrews will be chapter 11, that recitation of all the heroes in the history of Israel who did have faith. And like Abraham and Moses in particular, the author concentrates on. To think of all the odds that were against Abraham and Moses. And Moses, who really had to give up everything, did so because he had faith. And Abraham took every risk because he had faith. So you who are under duress, under persecution, in danger, don't give up the faith. That's the situation of Hebrews. Now, we don't know where this congregation lived. One clue is that at the very end it says those from Italy greet you. Now that can cut two ways. It could mean the author lived in Italy and was writing to a church somewhere else saying, you know, those here in Italy send you greetings. Or it could mean that the author lives somewhere else and he lives in the Italian ethnic community and he's saying, those Italians here with me send greetings back home to those of you in Italy. And in fact, that's the view that has prevailed among scholars for a couple of reasons. That seems to be the more natural reading of the Greek phrase, although it's debatable. The biggest factor is the argument and language of Hebrews, culturally speaking, fits one place in the Roman Empire better than anywhere else. It fits Alexandria, Egypt. The kind of intellectual environment in Alexandria, Egypt, is the closest intellectual environment to exactly the way the author of Hebrews writes and argues. Vocabulary, argument, structure of thought, and so on. Therefore, the most common opinion among scholars is that the author of Hebrews was a Jew who lived in Alexandria, Egypt. And that he probably had close connections with Rome and Italy and hung out with other Italians who lived in Alexandria, Egypt, and he was writing to churches, maybe not in Rome per se, but churches in Italy, maybe near Rome. Alexandria, Egypt, you may not know, you need to know this. Alexandria, Egypt was the second largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome. Now, you know it was famous. I mean, most of you do know about Cleopatra and all of those events. I mean, Alexandria was a wealthy, gorgeous city that by this time Rome totally controlled. You know, Cleopatra lost out. And Rome was completely dominating Alexandria, but it was still the jewel of the empire. And lose maybe five million people. It was the largest Jewish community in the Roman Empire. More Jews lived in Alexandria than lived in Jerusalem. There was a huge Jewish community in Alexandria, Egypt. And they had won more favors from Rome than any other Jewish community. They often were citizens. It vacillated. And they had a powerful intellectual leader by the name of Philo, P 
P-H-I-L-O. And Philo was a brilliant Jewish scholar. He died about A.D. 40 or 50. So he died in the lifetime of Paul. Philo wrote a lot, by the way. We have his writings. They've survived. And the author of Hebrews and Philo have a lot in common in the way they think, their vocabulary, and so on. Philo was this important Jewish intellectual in Alexandria, Egypt. He was the political leader, the intellectual leader of the Jewish community. So Alexandria was a very important city, and I assume the author lived there. Now, we don't know who the author is. Hebrews doesn't tell us. We don't know why. <coughs> Maybe the author felt he had reason to protect his identity. I suspect it's more likely that because Hebrews is basically a sermon, a word of exhortation, it didn't seem necessary for him to attach his name. Everyone who got the letter knew who it was from. But we don't. And we wish we, you know, we just have this insatiable curiosity to fill in these gaps. Now, in the ancient church, these were the guesses. Uh, some ancient church scholars guessed Luke. Now, why would you guess Luke? Because Luke Acts, that Luke wrote, is so sophisticated in its Greek. And Hebrews is so sophisticated. So these are the most sophisticated Greek texts in the New Testament. So Luke must have written Hebrews. And, of course, eventually, by the third century, there was a movement in the ancient church to say, Paul wrote it. I mean, by this time, Paul is such a hero. And we have so many documents of Paul. Who else would have written such a brilliant document as Hebrews, except Paul? Must have been Paul. Origen, a very famous scholar in the early church, beginning of the third century, the 200s, early 200s. Origen is famous for saying, as to who, who wrote Hebrews, only God knows. He knew, he knew that they didn't know. But Origen went on to say, and this is kind of the killer, Origen went on to say, but if by saying Paul wrote it, people in the church will read it, let's say Paul wrote it. And in fact, Hebrews almost didn't make it in the New Testament. There was a move in the early church to keep it out of the New Testament. And what really got it in was the belief that Paul wrote it. A misguided belief. But Hebrews got into the New Testament. Now, the most famous guess ever made, and the one that most scholars think is right, was made by Martin Luther at the time of the Reformation. And you've all heard this guess. Apollos. Martin Luther guessed Apollos. Why did he guess Apollos? Because Apollos came from Alexandria. Remember, according to the book of Acts, Apollos was a brilliant orator, a brilliant scholar. He came to preach in Corinth. Priscilla and Aquila had to straighten him out a little. But he was a major leader of the early church, and intellectual, and from Alexandria. And so people, Martin Luther guessed Apollos, and that's still, I would have to say, if one had to make a guess, that's still where I'd go that Apollos wrote Hebrews. Of course, we don't really know. Then in 1900, another famous guess was made. This was made by a German scholar, not that relevant, but his name was Adolf von Harnack. He was one of the... Ma in 1900, there was probably no more famous scholar of the early church living than Adolf von Harnack. He used to lecture. This is incredible. He lectured at the University of Berlin popular lectures, not required of any student, at 6 a.m. And the room would always be packed. He wrote over 2,000 books. He, he was an incredible scholar. I, I know. People like me look at Harnack and wonder why we even try. I mean, he, he was just incredible. But he guessed 
that Priscilla wrote Hebrews. If Apollos might have written it, why not Priscilla, who was one of Apollos' teachers? And Harnack felt there were some feminine touches in the book of Hebrews. And maybe we can note those later. They're very slight. But Harnack thought, that's it. Priscilla wrote Hebrews. So he wrote an article proposing that Priscilla wrote Hebrews. By 1915, four other people joined him in this belief. So there were about five famous scholars by 1915 who thought Priscilla wrote Hebrews, and nobody really took it seriously. There is one scholar living today, a woman. She lives in Northern California. God bless her. She's devoted her life to a campaign to promote Priscilla as the author of Hebrews. She's written two books, many articles, constantly sends letters to scholars saying, don't you realize Priscilla wrote Hebrews? What's wrong with you? Well, I've carried on a correspondence with her. She kind of likes me because at least I tell my students about her. And I'm one of the few scholars who takes her seriously enough to let my students know she exists. So... She's actually sent me a copy of her book, and I'm kind of on her good side. But integrity has required that I tell her I don't think she's right. Well, I don't know that it's important for us to know who wrote Hebrews. Clearly, the author had to have been brilliant, had to have been a great Christian teacher, probably was from Alexandria, probably was Apollos. Someone who was in the larger Pauline circle, yes. There's some connection. But that's probably the author. But we don't know for sure, and it doesn't really matter. Because what we have in Hebrews is a powerful text, whether or not we know the author. And Hebrews is so distinctive. And finally... Go back and look at our outline. Have we done, well, we haven't talked about the date. I guess I didn't even put that on the outline. We don't know the date. Hebrews makes no reference to the destruction of the temple. Some people think that all the sacrificial data in Hebrews means that the temple must have still been standing, and therefore Hebrews had to have written, been written before A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed. I don't think that's a substantial argument for this reason. When Hebrews talks about the sacrificial system, it's talking more about the tabernacle than the temple. It's using the Old Testament description of the tabernacle. I think the temple is an irrelevant question. So we don't know whether Hebrews was written in the 60s or the 70s or the 80s. And I, I wouldn't know how to solve that problem. <laughs> <coughs> except I think something this is just a feeling on my part that the language of Hebrews the form of argument the little glimpses it does give us of the church push me in the direction of the 70s rather than the 60s that's nothing I can prove it's not that important but somewhere between the 60s and the 80s Hebrews was written, I think, from Alexandria to Italy to a group of churches that had experienced persecution who were in danger of denying the faith. Now, the question I'm avoiding is, if these people denied the faith, what were they likely to do in its place? The most common view is that they were returning to Judaism. And that's based on the overwhelming sense in Hebrews that it's arguing that the old Jewish system is not effective. Implying that if you deny the faith and return to this system, it's not going to help you. And that's the majority opinion among scholars. I have a PhD student right now just turned in a paper to me on Friday arguing that point of view again uh, and he's a brilliant guy I'm not yet convinced I, I belong to the minority at this point 
that thinks that maybe the people who are denying the faith in Hebrews are in danger of just becoming unbelieving pagans. Atheists, as it were. Or devotees of the Roman emperor cult. Never does Hebrews specifically say that they were going to return to Judaism. It just talks about unbelief. And it talks about unbelief in the content of the Roman persecution. How would I then explain all these references to Judaism? That the author is Jewish. And that the whole issue, as we talked about last Sunday, is how does the church relate to its Jewish womb? vis-a-vis Jesus Christ. And that the author of Hebrews is going to argue that Jesus is this unique Melchizedekian high priest. A Jewish argument, to be sure. But what he wants to argue is that God's new covenant is all that is effective, and that the old covenant isn't effective. That background of the church is not the effective means of salvation. Like Paul argued, actually, in Romans and Galatians, Paul argued this and applied it also to Gentiles. Paul's strongest arguments against, as it were, the approach of the Jewish faith is in Romans. And Romans was written to a church that was predominantly Gentile. So I don't think the fact that Jewish authors struggling with the fundamental issue of the early church, who are always going to write it in terms of the Jewish context, proves that the audience has to have been Jewish. And that the audience of Hebrews were people who were Jews who were hankering to go back to the Jewish system. Maybe that's the right view. Please understand that the majority of scholars think that's the right view. I don't want to deceive you. But I think there's a lot of reason to question it. And I think most scholars at least recognize that this is an open question. Undoubtedly, the church was mixed. All the evidence that we have is that virtually every church in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s was a mixed church, Jews and Gentiles together. And Gentiles, remember, in Paul's vocabulary, if a Gentile came into the church, a Gentile understood him or herself to be a child of Abraham. Because that was the only rubric that existed at that time for describing God's family. God's family was the Abraham family. Because Abraham was the one who had faith. It's not until the second century that the church starts to define itself as the Christian family. And breaks away from the Abraham family terminology. So when Hebrews was written, anyone who believed in Jesus was following in the train of faithful people like Abraham and Moses. They were following in the faithful train of God's people, Gentile or Jew. They were living out, as Hebrews will argue, the promise of Jeremiah for a new covenant. But it's Jeremiah's promise. Why? Because that's scripture. That's the root. That's the foundation. It's the Jewish environment. But the new covenant is for everybody, not just Jew. It's Jew and Gentile. So that's how that argument goes. We're not quite sure the makeup of the audience or what the specific threat was, but Hebrews is remarkably pointed in saying that the Old Covenant is no longer effective. Let me just read a couple of texts. Chapter 7, verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, from the Levitical to the Melchizedekian, 
there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Verse 18 of chapter 7. There is, on the one hand, the abrogation of an earlier commandment because it was weak and ineffectual, for the law made nothing perfect. There is, on the other hand, the introduction of a better hope through which we approach God. Chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. But Jesus has now obtained a more excellent ministry. And to the degree that he is mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted through better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need to look for a second one. 8.13, in speaking of a new covenant, God has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old will soon disappear. And ten, one, since the law has only a shadow of good things to come and is not the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices, make perfect those who approach. And ten, nine, he abolishes the first in order to establish the second. Now, all of these texts that I've just cited from Hebrews 7, 8, and 9 are meant to illustrate that the author of Hebrews, not really unlike Paul, is arguing that the new covenant supersedes, replaces the old. That the new covenant is really the way God is relating to God's people. That in the words of Hebrews, Jesus has made a better sacrifice. And to anticipate what we're going to say the next few weeks, Hebrews will argue that the Levitical priests offered annual sacrifices, repeated sacrifices, and they themselves were sinners. Jesus, who's the Son of God, and was without sin, offered a perfect sacrifice and did it only once. And that perfect once-for-all sacrifice provided then what Hebrews calls eternal salvation. One sacrifice, one salvation. Once-for-all sacrifice, once-for-all salvation. And it's in that context that Hebrews suggests that if you depart from this once-for-all salvation, you're out. That's why in the language of Hebrews, you can, quote, lose it, unquote. Because in the Levitical system, the sacrifices could refresh you every year. But in the New Covenant with Jesus, where there was a one-time sacrifice, there is a one-time salvation. We'll talk about those details in the weeks to come. Don't worry about it yet. But that's an overview of Hebrews. So, it's 10.30. I'm being obedient. So we've got 10 minutes or so uh, for questions. We won't prolong this this Sunday because I have to... Uh, I've been asked if I would pray with the preacher of the morning and I need to leave here on time. So who has a question? Yes. Is it possible that the author was a Levite? Well, all things are possible. I doubt it. And the reason I doubt it is because there wouldn't be any significant evidence that a Levite would be living in Alexandria, Egypt, and would have been such a powerful intellectual leader. I think it's far more likely that this author was a rather learned cosmopolitan Jew. We're going to learn that he knows Philo, he knows the Dead Sea Scrolls community, he knows the Old Testament, 
And so from what little we know, I would say not likely a Levite, no. But he understands the Levitical system because he can read the text. He knows scripture and he knows the whole Jewish argument about the Levitical priesthood. And just to anticipate, Melchizedek, you know, is kind of a strange priesthood. Melchizedek is mentioned in Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. But what I want to introduce to you next week is that at the Qumran community, the Dead Sea Scroll community, which existed starting in the 2nd century B.C., they speculated about Melchizedek as a veritable partner with God. And actually, I'm going to read to you next week the text that the Dead Sea community wrote about Melchizedek in which Melchizedek is a virtual Messiah who forgives sins and so on. So I think the author was in touch with this huge network of Jewish speculation, Jewish theological ideas and what was outside the Levitical system. Another comment or question of any kind? Yes. Right. Right. Emily is pointing out that the argument that the audience was primarily Jewish is a strong argument given the Jewish community in Alexandria, Egypt, and so on. And of course you're right. It is a strong argument, and the majority thinks it's right on. I can't deny at all the strength of that argument. My wedge is twofold. One, that everything in the New Testament argues from Judaism. But we know in most cases that the audience is heavily Gentile. Therefore, an argument from Judaism does not determine the makeup of the audience. The argument will always be from Judaism because that was the only context from which the early church could argue. It grew out of the womb of Judaism. And second, my second wedge is that Hebrews talks only about unbelief. And it never talks explicitly about the return to Judaism, which I think would be strange if that were such a given. So I suspect that people in the audience of Hebrews were capable of any kind of religious falling away. Return to Judaism, Roman emperor cult, paganism, so that's my argument. And there are a minority of us scholars who think that's the case. Again, some of these issues you realize aren't earth-shaking. What's, what's most important is that we understand the structure of Hebrews, and it's very likely occasion out of a situation of persecution and people tending to leave the faith. If we understand that, and we understand the Christological and exhortation variation, that's most important. Date, authorship, identity of recipients are all second-level questions. Interesting, but second-level. Anything else? Yes. No, I didn't. I should. Her name is Ruth Hoppen. H-O-P-P-I-N. I don't know how old Ruth Hoppen would be, but based on how long I've known her and other things, I'm sure she's considerably older than I am.
which, of course, could still be young. But. And, and she has championed this. It's actually, InterVarsity Press will be publishing in November a new book called The Woman's, Women's Bible Commentary. It'll be a one-volume, 900-page book that will be a commentary on the Bible written primarily by women and in some cases written in a sense for women but for anybody and there will be a one page essay in that study bible by Ruth Hoppen arguing that Priscilla wrote Hebrews I know that because the publisher just sent me the galley proofs a couple days ago and I was looking through them I didn't know that ahead of time I actually wrote one of the articles in the women's Bible commentary, and I think I'm the only... Oh, there, there, there's another male author in there. Yeah. Hebrews, you mean? I think you said Romans. Yeah. The question is, did the author of Hebrews think you could lose your salvation? Now, I'm going to be kind of mean to you, Ralph, in that... The last Sunday, I want to give the whole class to that question. It's such a deep and big and complex question in Hebrews. If I were to try to give you a one-minute answer, it could have only one effect. It would either mislead you or deny my integrity, or both. So I'm going to beg off and say that you've asked one of the most important questions to ask, one of the deepest debates about the interpretation of Hebrews? At least we have to say, just at first glance, just like that, it appears that Hebrews says you can lose your salvation. And that's one reason, by the way, why some people wanted to keep Hebrews out of the New Testament in the early church. They said it was too strict, too tough. And it certainly is part of the argument of Hebrews, I said this this morning, that the Levitical sacrifices were repeated as if you had many chances for salvation. The Christ sacrifice happened once, and it produced eternal salvation. Implication, how many chances do you have for that salvation? One. Now, with that enticement, you might have more opportunities, right. I'm going to say we have to wait until October 28. A whole month, and then we'll deal with that. And I hope, Ralph, you can live with that. Okay. You understand? I mean, it's just, that, that's the way we have to do it, and we have to stop. So God bless you. Thank you. Next Sunday will be the first of two Sundays on the Christology of Hebrews. Hebrews teaching about Jesus Christ. This is deep, wonderful, exciting. And it's so vast, we're going to take two Sundays to do it. Okay.